0: This is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, July 28, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Crystal Bridges tonight is hosting the opening discussion connected to We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy with Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and Eric Slaughter, deputy dean of the Humanities at the University of Chicago. This discussion takes place inside the Great Hall of Crystal Bridges. It will also be streamed live by Arkansas PBS at myar.pbs.org/crystalbridgeslive. We have discussions on our show today too. In about 10 minutes, Arkansas's state epidemiologist will cover the latest numbers related to the state and COVID-19. And later, we find out how Joplin, Missouri continues to bring in world-class classical musicians for the annual Pro Musica concert series. First up today, long before the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision known as Roe v. Wade federally legalized abortion, teenage girls and women seeking to terminate an unwanted pregnancy often had to resort to extreme measures. Ozarks at-large's Jacqueline Froelich interviewed Melanie Welch, a scholar on late 19th and early 20th century reproductive rights in Arkansas, to bring us this history. And we warn you, certain language in this report may be disturbing to some.
1: While at Auburn University in 2009, Melanie K. Welch wrote her Ph.D. dissertation on the history of women's reproductive rights in Arkansas. It's a seminal investigation into the politics and poverty of birth control and abortion.
2: My scholarly research interest uh, was mostly guided by my ongoing interest in Arkansas women's history.
1: Welch, an independent historian who resides in Central Arkansas, says before modern birth control access, women resorted to various remedies and devices.
2: Depending on where they lived, um, they might go out and collect wild plants, such as something called pennyroyal, for example, that was used as a contraceptive. Some practiced the withdrawal method, and then there was such a thing as black market birth control, which included a number of items, including early forms of the diaphragm, for example. Um, and they tended to purchase these from individuals such as traveling peddlers, or they purchased them at pharmacies.
1: Women purchased vulcanized rubber condoms and cervical caps, used vaginal suppositories to congest the cervix and block sperm, made homemade spermicides, and post acidic douches Welch says some even used manufactured household cleaning chemicals.
2: You've heard of uh, Lysol disinfectant.
1: People used that as a birth control method during the 1930s. At the turn of the 19th century, the U.S. birth rate was among the highest in the world, with many women having seven children or more. A century later, the average birth rate dropped to three children due to industrialization and women able to access birth control to limit family size. Beginning in the 1840s, state legislatures banned the sale and use of contraceptives. A federal ban was instituted 30 years later. While religious leaders preached about the moral hazards of contraceptives and abortion, equating both to sexual promiscuity, Welch says lawmakers also sought control and power over women.
2: This is a patriarchal society, and the men, they were interested in controlling all aspects of society, including women's reproductive lives. They were the lawmakers and they were the church leaders. They made themselves part of those leadership positions to maintain their position in society.
1: Abortions were first banned in Arkansas in 1875 and nationwide. Five years later, women resorted to dangerous abortifacient medicines, advertised in newspapers, and sold discreetly in local drug stores, or they self-induced abortions. At
2: that time, if we're talking about the late 19th, early 20th century, now, to be sure, if they did this, they undertook great risk to their own lives, to their health. Um, this is not an era of what we define as modern medicine. Um, a lot of times they practiced self-abortion. They might use sharp household instruments. They might use their own knitting needles, for example. If they could, and then also they turn to abortifacients, different substances, herbs, that type of thing, or um, if might if they lived possibly in a more in a town, for example, or if they could travel, uh, they might turn to a abortionist who performed a surgical procedure.
1: These abortionists operated underground, located word of mouth. Some were compassionate medical providers. Others, mercenary butchers, placing women at risk of infection, hemorrhaging, and death.
2: And why did they do this? Well, they did it for much the same reasons that we would recognize today, to avoid the stigma of single pregnancy, for example, because they simply couldn't afford another child, financial concerns, or maternal and fetal health issues.
1: A new medical industry emerged. As a consequence, surgeons who specialized in repairing botched abortions. Welch says low-income and impoverished rural women were most at risk during this era.
2: And this is, we're talking about much of the state of Arkansas. Um, Back to lack of financial resources. Um, Limited means to travel. Even in, say, as far up into the 1960s. Someone might not have transportation for two trips to get to the clinic and come back. Now, that's in the 20th century, as early as late as the 60s. Inconsistent access to health care for the same reasons. Um, that very much limited women's ability to access uh, contraception and abortion.
1: Arkansas women began to organize for reproductive rights in the early 1970s, Walch says.
2: There were groups of women in Little Rock. There was a group there right there in um, Fayetteville uh, at the, um, the University of Arkansas. Groups of women organized there as well. Um, they were uh, supporters of feminism as we understand it at that time. They organized, they argued that uh, reproductive control and this means contraception and abortion uh, were part of women's self-determination and thus uh, Defined them as reproductive
1: rights. And safe birth control had become widely available, including contraceptive pills and intrauterine devices. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court issued the landmark decision, Roe v. Wade, enabling a constitutional right to abortion for all.
2: In the case of low-income women, most certainly, uh, they would have had greater access to safer and reliable Uh, contraceptives, and abortion care.
1: Access to abortion, Welch says, has historically been scant in Arkansas compared to states like California. Several planned parenthood clinics provided comprehensive family planning services at the time, including access to safe surgical abortions.
2: Usually you had to go to either Little Rock or Fayetteville. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Um, here in Little Rock, they provided abortion care at least early on after the passage of Roe v.ersus Wade. And then there was another physician. Uh, His name was Dr. William F. Harrison. There's an entry on him in the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, if anyone wants to go read about it. He was educated at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He set up a clinic in 1979 in Fayetteville, and he provided abortions at his clinic in Fayetteville, abortion care, until uh, 2010, which was the time of
1: his death. Dr. Harrison's staff, patients, and his family were verbally harassed by pro-life protesters. His clinic picketed, vandalized, and set on fire. Up until his death, he continued to defend his right to provide safe medical abortions. But in recent years, Welch says, a conservative-majority Arkansas legislature has increasingly placed barriers to clinical abortion.
2: Including uh, mandatory waiting periods, which kept getting longer, from 48 hours to 72 hours before you could obtain an abortion. Parental consent required for uh, minors' abortions. And of course, you know burdensome and largely unnecessary regulations upon uh, abortion-providing facilities.
1: According to the Pro-Choice Guttmacher Institute, 860,000 clinical abortions were provided in 2017, last count. Over 3,300 in Arkansas, where only two abortion clinics continued to operate. That is, until June 24th, when a majority conservative U.S. Supreme Court declared the 50-year-old constitutional right to an abortion, an abuse of judicial authority, reversing it and leaving it to states to decide. Arkansas is among 13 states that immediately outlawed abortion, making no exception for women and girls who are victims of rape and incest. Walsh says, despite the ban, Arkansas teenage girls and women as they historically always have, will continue to seek abortions. But now they are forced to travel long distances at great expense. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
0: Hospitalizations from COVID-19 have gone up in Arkansas over the past few days, but the number of active cases continues to go down. Michael Hibland with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock Spoke with state epidemiologist Mike Sima about the latest trends.
3: It seems like the increasing number of cases we've seen in recent weeks is plateauing, but more people are becoming hospitalized. Uh, what do you think is happening?
4: Well, uh, as you mentioned, you know, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen an increased activity surrounding COVID-19 transmission higher number of cases, and uh, to a lesser extent, an increase in hospitalizations associated with COVID-19. But it seems now that we've hit a point where cases are leveling off, uh, may even be starting to tick downward. Um, but yeah, hospitalizations continue to increase uh, moderately day-to-day. Um, what we know from previous points in the pandemic and from our experience is that hospitalizations is a lagging indicator. that even as cases start to decrease, uh, that we may see some fluctuations in hospitalizations in the coming days, but that eventually it will follow suit uh, in the trends we're seeing with cases.
3: And looking at the numbers, active cases had been going up, getting close to 17,000 as of last Saturday. But since then, we've, for the most part, seen that recoveries are outpacing new infections. Uh, Does this seem like a solid trend? Have we seen this enough days to suggest uh, this actually may be on the uh, downturn
4: well it's early uh, to be making any definitive statements but uh, the data that we monitor suggests that uh, yeah we are starting to see a decrease in the number of new cases that we're reporting each day that we're observing each day uh, maybe a lower uh, you know transmission occurring in the communities But again, it is still very early. Uh, We're still reporting north of 1,300 cases on average, uh, you know, day in and day out. So there is still quite a bit of disease in the community. Uh, But the hopeful trends are that we are uh, heading downward.
3: What advice would you have for people right now?
4: I think the the advice that we've had for over the past couple of years uh, is still salient to this point. You know, uh, we have vaccines that are readily available that we know are effective at staving off the worst this disease has to offer. Uh, We have, you know, tried and true mitigation measures, you know, be it masking or distancing or what have you, and and combining all these, being up to date with vaccinations, being mindful of uh, your own risk uh, to COVID-19, you know, taking that all into account and acting uh, on that information appropriately uh, is the best tool that you're going to have about uh, you combating COVID-19 on an individual level.
3: Anything else worth adding based on what you're seeing at this point?
4: Just to reiterate that, you know, while the trends are hopeful, uh, at least right now, uh, there, there is still a, a, a lot of disease in the community. There's still a lot of transmission. We're identifying a lot of cases. So uh, while we are optimistic about the coming days, there that is still an important point to make, that there is still quite a bit of transmission occurring uh, right now in Arkansas.
3: That's Dr. Mike Seema, state epidemiologist with the Arkansas Department of Health. Sir, thanks for your time. My pleasure. In Little Rock, I'm Michael Hip
0: lynn Ahead on the show, how the late Cameron Smith helped change how Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas operate. Mervyn Jebaraj, an economist with the University of Arkansas, talks about Smith's work and influence inside this week's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal
5: Report in about two minutes. Next week is Member Appreciation Week here at KUAF Public Radio. We're taking extra time to celebrate our supporting listeners. You're a vital part of the foundation of KUAF's mission to be a leader in public media, serving our audience with programs that challenge, entertain, educate, and inform. Now we want to feature some of our members next week on air, so we want you to connect with KUAF through the KUAF Connect button using the iPhone app. You can also call the Connect line 479-575-6577. Let us know in just two words why you support your public radio station. Again, the number 575-6577 or use the Connect button on the KUAF app for iPhone. And thank you for supporting public radio. Talk Business and Politics reports sales tax revenue
0: up almost 19 percent in northwest Arkansas's four-largest city July report. Bentonville, Fayetteville, Rogers, and Springdale reported cumulative sales tax revenue of just under $9 million. That's up more than $1.4 million from the same period last year. July revenue is comprised from the 1% of local sales tax each city collected on goods and services in May. And the report is a mixed bag. The local sales tax revenue growth is also boosted by higher prices. The Consumer Price Index is up 8.6% in May from the year-ago period.
6: This is today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. Bentonville-based Walmart sounded an alarm bell for the U.S. economy this week. The world's largest retailer and the beacon of everyday low prices lowered its profit outlook on Monday for the current quarter and the fiscal year, saying inflation is a growing concern. Shares dropped nearly 10% on the news. Walmart said in a news release that double-digit food inflation is higher than it was at the end of last quarter noting that it's affecting customers' ability to spend on general merchandise categories, and that's requiring more markdowns to move through inventory, particularly in the apparel category. Earnings per share for the year could fall as much as 13% short of last year's figure. Walmart will report its second quarter earnings before the market opens on August 16th. Kim Souza has some additional reporting on this week's news, and you can find that at nwabusinessjournal.com. There's more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report, including some comments from University of Arkansas economist Mervin Jebaraj. He will discuss the impact of the late Cameron Smith on the Walmart supplier community in Northwest Arkansas.
7: Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender.
6: Nearly two weeks after his death, Northwest Arkansas business leader Cameron Smith is being remembered for his impact on the region. Smith co-founded the prominent executive recruiting firm Cameron Smith & Associates in Rogers, focused on the consumer products industry. In a recent interview with Roby Brock, University of Arkansas economist Mervyn Jebaraj discussed Smith's legacy as it relates to the vast Walmart supplier community in Northwest Arkansas and the region's growth. Explain to a lot of folks
3: who may not know how influential Cameron Smith was in that supplier community and how influential that supplier community and Walmart are to that Northwest Arkansas economy.
8: Yeah, I mean, you think about Northwest Arkansas today and you see what's there today, the amount of jobs that there are, the nice amenities and it's a great place to live and all of these things. But if you think back to when some of these companies started, so the big three companies like Walmart, Tyson and J.B. Hunt started a long time ago in Northwest Arkansas and Northwest Arkansas was not nearly this desirable place to live. Uh, we didn't really have a four lane road coming up to Northwest Arkansas for a long time either. Um, not a nice airport to fly into either. So, if you think back to where Northwest Arkansas was, say, even in the 90s when Walmart was a major retailer uh, in this country, it was still hard to convince people to move here to take a Walmart job, and certainly hard to convince people to move here to take supplier community jobs. So, at that time, um, you know, before Cameron Smith got a start here in Northwest Arkansas, there were very few vendors. Uh, these are the people that sell. Uh, goods through Walmart based here in Northwest Arkansas. So most of the employment in the retail industry was Walmart itself and then very little uh, in the vendor community. And so we would not, Northwest Arkansas would not have had uh, the phenomenal growth that it's seen um, in the 90s and in the 2000s had it not been for the growth both at Walmart, but also very importantly in the vendor community. And so um, at the time before Cameron Smith got his start here in Northwest Arkansas, I think there were maybe 40 to 50 vendors um, based here in Northwest Arkansas that had offices that were selling goods through Walmart. And today we have maybe up to 15 1,600 vendors here in Northwest Arkansas. And Cameron Smith was integral to bringing maybe up to a third of those vendors to Northwest Arkansas. So back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was him and others that Uh, really convinced vendors that they needed to have a presence here to be able to sell more goods through Walmart and, you know, got uh, the existing vendor community to write testimonials, to send to other vendors, to try to convince them to come here. So uh, today it's a lot easier to convince people to move to Northwest Arkansas. You know, there are all these jobs, people have heard of it. Uh, All of these vendor communities there are from bigger vendor companies that have headquarters in bigger cities Uh, routinely send their people here and it's not as much of a struggle but back in the day when we didn't have the amenities and people didn't know what Northwest Arkansas was uh, it really took the hard work of people like Cameron Smith to try to grow the vendor community which really uh, that you know growth in the vendors from 40 to 50 to all the way to 1600 was what drove the economic growth in Northwest Arkansas especially in the 90s and 2000s. And the 2010s, it's largely been everything else that's grown in Northwest Arkansas. But the previous two decades very much was driven by the growth at Walmart and the vendor community. And Cameron Smith played a huge role in that.
6: And that is University of Arkansas economist Mervin Jebaraj appearing on a reasoned episode of Talk Business and Politics with Roby Brock. Remember, you can catch the TV show every Sunday morning at 1030 on KFSM Channel 5. In other news this week, we are now less than three weeks away from our 26th annual 40 Under 40 event in Rogers. The magazine will be out Monday, August 15th with profiles of this year's honorees. And on the following day at the Embassy Suites in Rogers, we will formally recognize this year's class at a luncheon featuring keynote speaker Martine Pollard with Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Tickets are available. You can call Rob Gutteridge for more information at 7250394, The University of Arkansas has accepted a $1 million gift from an alum that will create an endowment for the oldest building on campus, Old Main. The five-story building was built in 1875, added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1970, and fully restored in the early 90s. The donation will support the perpetual upkeep and maintenance of the building. Old Main is home to the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences Dean's Office, as well as multiple academic departments, centers, and faculty of the Fulbright College. And consumer spending remains elevated across Northwest Arkansas, which has pushed sales tax revenue nearly 19% higher in May, according to the region's four largest cities' latest report. Bentonville, Fayetteville, Rogers, and Springdale reported cumulative sales tax revenue in May, totaling $8.9 million. That's up more than $1.4 million from the same period last year. For more news, visit us online at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: The next topic for discussion in the Onward Ozark series is Northwest Arkansas's growing diversity. It's going to include an update on the Northwest Arkansas Council's work toward making the region a more welcoming and inclusive place to live, play, and work. Margo Lemaster, executive director of Engage NWA, will speak. There will also be a panel discussion, including the founder and president of Arkansas Association of Asian Businesses and the president of Banco C, a division of Signature Bank of Arkansas. The conversation tomorrow morning at 9 on Zoom. If you'd like to participate, you can register at Eventbrite by searching for Onward Ozarks. The celebration of the 50th anniversary of the designation of the Buffalo River as a national river continues Saturday afternoon with a special concert in Gilbert. Two members of the Ozark Highballers, Roy and Aviva Pilgrim, will perform music as it would have existed along the Buffalo about 100 years ago. Still on the Hill will perform music from their CD, Still a River. That recording, released in 2016, pays tribute to the legends and stories of the Buffalo. Their performances will be punctuated with demonstrations of traditional dance and commentary about guitar making. This all happens Saturday afternoon from 2 until 3.30 at the Schoolhouse Meeting Rooms in Gilbert. Finally, here's a simple entomological rule. All bugs are insects, but not all insects are bugs. That's sort of the jumping-off point for Dr. Austin Jones Sunday afternoon at Hobbs State Park. He'll discuss bugs, insects and animals like spiders and millipedes that are neither bug nor insect. His talk, The Good, the Bad, and the Amazing, Bugging in the Natural State, begins Sunday afternoon at 2 at the Hobbs State Park Visitor Center near Rogers. The program is free. It's open to the public.
5: The Arkansas Times and the Arkansas Cannabis Industry Association present the Medical Marijuana Health Expo Saturday, August 27th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Northwest Arkansas Convention Center in Rogers. Medical professionals, pharmacists, and local bud tenders will lead seminars on treating a variety of symptoms with medical marijuana. Details and tickets available at CentralArkansasTickets.com. Terrific Tuesday nights return this summer to the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks. The garden will be open with no admission fee from 5 to 8 p.m. each Tuesday, June through August. Picnics are welcome and family-friendly entertainment will be offered on select evenings. More information is available at bgozarks.org.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Tis the season. To announce seasons, this week the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, SONA, announced its concert series for 2022-2023. And both the Starlight Jazz Series and the West Street Live Concert Series at Walton Arts Center were revealed as well. We also recently learned what's in store for the next season of Pro Musica based in Joplin, Missouri. The series of concerts at different venues throughout the city draws attendees from Joplin, but from the surrounding states, including Arkansas. This week I talked with Emlyn Johnson, the executive director of Pro Musica by Zoom, and asked her about the seven concerts that include Trio Cambrio Copenhagen, the Ying Quartet, and Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Wind Ensemble. But first, I asked her about the past two seasons that took place during the height of the pandemic.
9: I began my role as ProMusica in April 2021, but previous to that, there was kind of a reimagined season in 2020-2021 that pivoted to some virtual performances. And also, we were able to have some live outdoor performances towards the end of the season, with really different kinds of music from some of our you know, more traditional uh, chamber music to a jazz group and a kind of bluegrass fusion group, kind of concerts that were perfect outside and also could draw in a really you know, kind of wide swath of the community. A lot of different people were able to come and enjoy it. And then in our most recent season, 2021-22, we were able to put on a fully live season and we're really grateful that the community wanted to support that, that people were really ready to get back to live music. We were pared down a little bit because of some cancellations and postponements, but we did everything we could to keep people safe and to keep people enjoying classical music.
0: And now we look at the 2022-2023 season. Oh, my goodness. Vienna Boys Choir, uh, St. Martin in the Fields, Wind Ensemble. I mean, this is a heck of a lineup.
9: It is a heck of a lineup. We're pretty excited. <laughs>
0: How, how does how does ProMusica put together this lineup?
9: That's a great question. Uh there are a lot of there are a lot of moving pieces to any season, of course. And with every season of ProMusica, we really like to have a mix of Groups that are known nationally, groups that are known internationally, um, different kinds of instrumentation, groups that have been around a long time and ones that, that are just emerging. And so a lot of that comes from conversations that we have with managers and agents around the country and around the world, looking at different groups that they're offering, uh, hearing about exciting new groups, their word of mouth and different conferences that we attend. And truly, Promusica has been around a long time. This will be our 43rd season. And has quite a reputation for being a series that treats its artists really well. That has extremely enthusiastic and grateful audiences, and so many of our artists and managers are are excited about coming here and about and about sending performers here.
0: It starts uh, September eighth with the Cinta Quartet. Talk about bringing in artists because you're bringing in artists from I think at least three different places mm-hmm. to play together, all saxophone.
9: The Jacinta Quartet is an incredible saxophone quartet. They've won so many of the big chamber music awards in the U.S., and they are a really just dynamic group of people. They have a real mix of repertoire. They've commissioned a lot of repertoire for their ensemble, so new pieces really specifically written for them. And then they also make a lot of arrangements of more classically oriented pieces and pieces that are kind of traditional saxophone repertoire. Of course, the saxophone is one of our newer instruments in the classical music world. You know, now it's a few hundred years old, but it's still one of our newer instruments. (laughs) And so the repertoire looks a little bit different, you know, than a string quartet or, um, or a piano trio. It's just different repertoire. So they have a lot of really fun music to offer. And they are just one of the best groups out there for how they blend together as an ensemble. So I think that's really exciting for people to experience that really close up.
0: And what I love about the, the four musicians is um, two live in Michigan, one in Missouri. I mean, it proves that you don't have to be in one of two or three American cities to be an amazing classical musician.
9: Yes, and I'm so happy that you mentioned that because we are seeing that more and more today. You don't have to go to New York to make it (laughs) classical music that really there are amazing performers all around the country, many who teach at universities in many different places, many who have formed freelance careers. And this particular collection of musicians, as you mentioned, coming from different places, they come together, you know, on each of their tours. Um, and so even though they're not living in the same place all the time, they have such a bond and they've been playing together now for 10 years. You know, they, they have figured out a way to make it work.
0: <laughs> uh the Vienna Boys Choir coming in November. That's November 4th. That's going to be at Central Christian Center. How many come and where do they stay?
9: <laughs> that's a great question. Um, they, The choir will have about 24 members, um, and of course, parent chaperones <laughs> along with them. Right. And they are making a pretty quick stop in Joplin, but they're American tours, they often have a holiday theme and they go really from one city to the next. So they'll really only be here about a day and then move on (laughs) to the next city. Um, But we know that the Vienna Boys Choir is an audience favorite the world over, including in Joplin, and we haven't had them for many years and they were postponed due to COVID. So it is just extremely exciting to have them. And we know that that is going to reach out and bring in So many audience members and hopefully some some patrons who are new to Pro Musica as well.
0: So there's the Shore Performance Hall at Cornell Complex, but there's also churches and also some of this extends into the Joplin Public Schools, right?
9: Definitely. Yes. For the 40 plus years that Promusica has been presenting concerts and, and a robust education series as well, we have had really strong community partnerships. So we've always worked with local churches, schools, concert halls. And this fall, it's really exciting because we are starting a new partnership with the Cornell Complex, which includes the Be Shore Performance Hall and includes space for several arts organizations in Joplin. The two lead partners there are Connect to Culture and the Spiva Art Gallery and Pro Musical will have our offices there as well and we will share several of our events each year there um, and there will also be lots of other exciting programming from many different organizations that will be shared with the Joplin community. Now. Because we're going to host several of our concerts there, that doesn't mean we're losing all of our other community partnerships. We have long-standing collaborations with so many wonderful spaces to enjoy music in Joplin. And each of those spaces also brings in a little bit of a different crowd and might be geared towards a little bit different kinds of music. You know, we might have one church partner that's great for a string quartet, and we might have a school venue that's great for a brass quintet, you know. So we really kind of try and pair the venue and the ensemble together and think about how an audience is going to enjoy music in that space.
0: I mentioned the Vienna Boys Choir. I mentioned Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Wind Ensemble. There is a Grammy-nominated string quartet. There's a Van Cliburn winner. Okay, I've lived almost my entire adult life. No, I have lived my entire adult life in the Arkansas Ozark. So I don't ask this question other than I'm used to hearing it myself, but How Joplin? Why Joplin? (laughs) I mean, we get that all the time here from people who don't live here.
9: Sure, sure. Well, our founder, Cynthia Schwab, who started Pro Musica in 1981, is a true powerhouse and visionary. And she, from the very beginning, she just wanted to bring classical music to the area. She wanted to see more of that in her community. And from the very beginning, she was on the ball talking to groups like Chamber Music America, talking to all sorts of different chamber organizations, chamber music organizations around the country, learning about what groups are out there, what groups are touring, what we need to do to get them to Joplin. Over the years, she really built this reputation for Promusica, showing that we were a, a series that's really focused on hospitality, that's really focused on providing a good experience for the artists, and that is really focused on the community. You know, these artists travel all over, and some places they come in and out very quickly and don't have a lot of personal connection with the organizers. We try to really kind of have a different environment here, that we make sure that They feel at home. They feel welcome. They get to interact with our board members. They get to interact with students in the community or other young musicians in the community. So we really try to try to make them feel at home. And I think that's a a big part of it, you know, is that they're happy to be here because we're so happy to have them here.
0: (laughs) Where do people buy tickets?
9: Great question. Most of our concerts actually every season are free of charge. We do donation based concerts. We have a, a really grassroots organization with a lot of local donors, individuals, businesses, local foundations who support our series. And so we're able to offer our concerts free of charge. Our one concert this year that will be ticketed will be the Vienna Boys Choir because a little bit different kind of program those tickets will be going on sale on august 1st and there will be a link on our website on the vienna boys choir concert page i would love to mention one concert that i'm particularly excited about which is the public quartet October 13th. And they also are the group that we're featuring this year for our annual arts education residency. That means that they actually spend a little bit more time in Joplin and they play uh, music and present education events for all Joplin Public Schools fourth graders. So they really get integrated into the community. And that group is just so exciting. They're doing really exciting work, which is mixing kind of the classical repertoire with their own improvisation that really builds on all sorts of different styles. They're incredibly dynamic. And I have a personal connection with them, which is that I went to music school with two of the people in the group. So it's also very cool for me to see, you know, people that kind of I came up with um, who are being nominated for Grammys and who are traveling around the world and and I just feel so grateful that I get to reconnect with them and share them with our Joplin audiences.
0: Emlyn Johnson is the executive director of Pro Musica in Joplin, Missouri. Our conversation took place this week over Zoom. You can see the entire season schedule and learn more about the artists
5: involved at promusicajoplin.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Rave Cultural Foundation welcomes N.W.A. Chai Time, the third Sunday of each month. These family-friendly get-togethers will feature a sponsor expert sharing knowledge on topics such as gardening, writing a memoir, and more. Events are free, but registration is required. R.A.-V.E. CulturalFoundation.org for more information. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large,
0: making sure Arkansas traditional and folk arts stay alive through a mentor and mentorship program.
9: The idea is that Arkansas traditions are important, um, but that community members and tradition bearers are the experts. And so we're here to to document, right? And and create presentations and programming and exhibits on Arkansas traditions. But I think our third prong is the most important and that is sustaining um, Arkansas traditions
0: the Arkansas Folk and Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program explained on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Plus, our weekly review of news with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics and much more. You can be with us tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3 or just stream us through KUAF.com or through the free KUAF app.
10: Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Australian composer Xenia Chan's piece, In the Land of Curiosity. Chan, a multidisciplinary artist, composer, pianist, art curator, and educator, wrote In the Land of Curiosity in 2019. In her words, this piece quote, draws inspiration from the notion of curiosity inspired by a narrative written when I was a child and by children who surround me. This piece follows an exploration of curiosity from the beginning with the unknown until it concludes at its arrival with something familiar and known, end quote. I was particularly taken by the beauty of this piece, the sounds of the double reeds, how the different lines find and support each other and make me think about both the simplicity and the depth of innocence. That was in the land of curiosity for oboe, bassoon and piano by Australian composer Xenia Chen, performed by Ensemble Français, a Melbourne-based group founded in 2016 and formed by oboist Emmanuel Casimatis, bassoonist Matthew Neal and pianist Nicholas Young. Spanish composer Javier Navarrete is best known for his collaboration with Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro in the film Pants Labyrinth. With this music, Navarrete received an Oscar Academy Award nomination for Best Score in 2007. The soundtrack for this movie is based on a lullaby, which suits the storyline of a movie that explores complex, real and mythical stories through the eyes of a child. Let us listen to Pan's Labyrinth's lullaby interpreted by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. That was Penn's Labyrinth Lullaby, a piece by Spanish composer Javier Navarrete and part of the soundtrack for Guillermo del Toro's film of the same name, interpreted by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Today in Sound Perimeter, we explore the depth of innocence and the complexity of life as seen through children's eyes and through music. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sound and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. Find more information about our composers featured today in our program notes. See you soon.
0: This is 91.3 KUAF. Contributors today included Jacqueline Frolick, Leo Rebe, Michael Hiblin, and Paul Gatling. Timothy Dennis produced today's Sound Perimeter. Stephanie Brock produced the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. Giving the last word today to John McCurdy, the Director of Community Development in Rogers. He was on our show Tuesday explaining work in that city to ease traffic congestion. McCurdy is paying attention not just to the effects of growth in Rogers, but all of Northwest Arkansas. He's especially fond of a street in Fayetteville. We didn't have time on Tuesday's show to hear his observations about Garland Avenue and how those observations extend to traffic flow. So he's getting the last word today.
11: Here's what I talk about with Garland. We we build streets, engineers, civil engineers build streets based on common cross sections of the street. And those cross sections are linked to the function of the street. Is it a local street, which is meant to be, you know, circulating within a neighborhood? Does it collect neighborhoods and, you know, funnel from a collection of local streets, a collector, or is it an an arterial, which is intended to move from here to there? All arterials shall be five lanes with a side path on one side and a sidewalk on the other and street trees and lights all the way down. You know, it's a typical cross-section for an arterial. Garland functions as an arterial. From I 49 from the farm all the way to the campus, where you tee in, you know, where you used to be able to go by the student union.
12: Yeah.
11: Um, and through that, you know, along that distance, you go from rural highway, basically, two lanes with a shoulder and a ditch, um, and then you transition through a neighborhood section and then you have sort of a little commercial area right there where it it kind of is it looks like a standard cross-section arterial but it's more walkable in some ways than you know than a lot of arterials as you get into the campus it becomes a, a boulevard right but the whole street functions as an arterial and so one of the problems that we have is that people design streets based on the function versus based on the function plus the context and so you know because of that things don't work very well you end up with too many lanes and you know and, I know, and I recognize that I love, I love Garland, and, and two lanes with a, with a shoulder in a ditch is perfectly fine for the amount of traffic on Garland. Now, anybody from Fayetteville is immediately going to say, well, that's, that's not true. You, you should see it in the morning. But the problem with the morning is that it backs up from the stoplight. You know, it's not that the road doesn't have the capacity to handle the number of cars that are using it. It's that, it. it's that the intersection is, you know, is inefficient. And so you can either widen the entire road, which will impact the natural environment. You're going to push everything out into the, you know, the, the university farm. It's going to disrupt the, at least the current stormwater system that exists out. And so it has all these little tentacles of, you know, undesirable side effects when you do that. Or you can deal with the intersection, and, and what, well, what could you do with the intersection? You could replace it with a roundabout, you could do some you know, more advanced interchange when you get to I-49. Um, you could do a dog bone, which is basically a, a roundabout on either side. like a, It literally looks like a dog bone where you, the traffic continuously flows. Um, all of these are designed to remove the left-turn conflict, which creates the need to stack cars. So it's people turning left and, you know, how the signal itself sequences that causes the left turn, you know, causes you to have to make the road really, really wide at the intersection in order to handle all the get flush as many cars as you can through on the green light. Well, when you do that, you're flushing all these cars as a single platoon of cars driving down the road together. Now you need the road to be wider to handle that slug of cars that you created when the light turned green. And so it's just, I I think it's more a matter of intersection capacity than it is about road capacity.
0: John McCurdy is the Director of Community Development in Rogers. You can hear our conversation about traffic growth by searching for it or the entire Tuesday program at OzarksAtLarge.com. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellams.